1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan.
0: And Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, today we are so pleased to welcome back to the show Dr. Reem Al Mutwali for a two part conversation on fashions of the United Arab Emirates. And Dr. Reem, you may remember, came on last season. She came on to discuss her wonderful nonprofit organization, the Zay Initiative, which is dedicated to advancing the preservation of Arab cultural heritage. And they do that through the collection, documentation, and digital archiving of historical attire. And they also document the myriad of history stories sewn into these very garments. It's such a wonderful organization. It has a really beautiful goal of empowering and sustaining global cross-cultural dialogue to inspire creative minds.
1: Yeah, and our listeners might remember that the Zay Initiative represents the first fashion history archive dedicated exclusively to Arab dress and features fashions from a wide variety of cultures and countries that include Yemen, Morocco, Kuwait, Iraq, Syria, Tunisia, Egypt, and for our intents and purposes today, also the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, where Dr. Reem herself grew up. And it's Dr. Reem's personal collection of UAE garments that has served as the foundation for the Zay Initiative Fashion Archive. And it is this collection and Dr. Reem's vast knowledge of UAE dress practices and histories that serve as the focus of our conversation today. Yeah, and that is because Dr. Reem is the author of
0: an incredible two-volume book entitled Sultani Traditions Renewed, which discusses the evolution of women's dress in the United Arab Emirates from 1966 to 2004. And this was a period of vast economic and social transformation. And do not be fooled by that short date range, dress listeners, because the UAE may be a young country, but the region, as a stop on the famed Silk Road, comes with thousands of years of dress and textile history. And this is something Dr. Reem will illuminate further in our conversation as we discuss everything from tailors and textiles to makers and manufacturers to the social, cultural, and political influences on Dress to the wearers themselves.
1: Yes, and we are so pleased to welcome Dr. Reem back to the show. Dr. Reem, welcome back to Dress. It's such a pleasure to
0: have you back with us.
2: Thank you, Cassidy. It's The pleasure is all mine, and I'm looking forward to this wonderful conversation together.
0: Yes, me too. We talked a little bit about your book the first time you were on the show, but for listeners who might not remember, you wrote this incredible two-volume, 600-plus page book called Sultani Traditions Renewed. It's the first of its kind. It's an incredible feat of research that explores a topic that is clearly very near and dear to your heart, and that is the dress practices of women in the United Arab Emirates. Can you please tell us about the inspiration behind this epic project and undertaking?
2: Luckily, my dear, I happened to be at the right place in the right time where I began gathering the UAE collection, which you named Sultani, organically. What do I mean by that? Wearing it myself as I grew up in this locale and experiencing the tradition of dress in the United Arab Emirates was part and parcel of me growing up. As I worked on the, my doctorate, As we fast forward to later on, I found myself in the fortunate position of being the recipient of many of the dresses illustrated upon in my thesis, which later was published as Sultani, Traditions Renewed, Changes in Women's Traditional Dress in the UAE during the reign of Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan Al Nahyan in 1966 to 2004. To clarify, the Sultani collection relates to the UAE in particular and it is what promoted me to keep expanding. Collecting as a hobby is one thing, and collecting with an intention to seriously document a culture is completely another. The latter comes with great responsibility and an institutional perspective. Crossing that bridge is a daily learning process, which is enlightening on a personal level and overwhelming at the same time. By deciding to create the Zay Initiative, as a nonprofit organization, grounded the effort, yet opened the door to a whole set of administrative, technical, and manpower obligations. From what was once a personal passion, overnight it became a team effort that requires dedicated and passionate individuals to record research, write, edit, input data, create content, and preserve. The list is really endless and overwhelming leading to the need to look beyond the present to find means and the funds to sustain the work and make it available to the public. The Zay collection is continuously growing, much larger collection of which Sultani is just a part of it. So we grew so much more and we've gone so much further since the first time you and I spoke about Sultani.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I love that your collection of United Arab Emirates dress forms the foundation of the Zay Initiative and that starting point from which the organization has really blossomed and bloomed, especially since we last spoke. There's so many things I love about this book. You have personal access to the royal family. You collected firsthand counts from people who you knew personally, of course, and the book is dedicated to His Highness, the crown prince wrote a very endearing forward speaking to your work and friendship. So there's just so many different elements and aspects of this book that that came together to create it. And i love if you could tell us a little bit more about what comprised your archive, the people you interviewed, and what garments did you study specifically?
2: Cassidy, you are very right. In my opinion, the Zay is but a continuation of the first steps that I encountered in creating the book Sultani which is, as you said, very unique and different, as it encompasses, for the first time, women from different social and generational backgrounds in the UAE being interviewed and documented. This was not the norm when I was working on this in the 90s. Some of them were from the ruling family, which made it very unique. Others from, were, came from remote villages and tribes. I can safely say that so far, To date, the Sultani collection is the only existing collection that has been documented and published when it comes to the United Arab Emirates. Now having said that, we must always remember that the UAE is a young and developing country that has seized present global circumstances to catapult itself to where it stands today among the developed world in such a short span of time by all measures. Therefore, it is imperative that we record as much as we can before it swiftly evolves. I was, as I said, at a particular time, at the right time and place. And having grown among these families, including the founding father of the United Arab Emirates, the late Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al Nahyan, we lived in a specific age where it was wonderful that we could capture all these elements and put them together into a body of academic work, as well as true tangible pieces of uh, clothing that can compose my way of giving back to a country that became my home. You know, I am from originally from Iraq, but I grew up in this area. And for me, it was a way of saying thank you to a country that became my home as I grew up in it people that I interviewed and garments that I collected, the list is endless. and again you will find it whether it is in the Sultani the book or in, on the website now that we've got which has the digital archive. It is the first digitally archived collection that encompasses the Arab it spans the Arab world and the region. And the UAE collection is part of that. So now we are transforming all the knowledge that we have in the books that I had worked on and making them available for globally for people free of charge to be able to study and get inspired by. Yeah. And as I mentioned,
0: a lot of these garments are also featured in this incredible book. We're going to talk all about the stories and the histories that are featured in this book. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about you, because I remember in our very first interview, you talked about how you were raised on the appreciation of beauty And you came of age in the nascent years of the newly formed United Arab Emirates. As you mentioned, it's a very new country, a federation of seven emirates formed in 1971. Can you please tell us about what it was like? And if you have any early memories that might have influenced your continued relationship to dress? And then just to clarify, I believe your father was an advisor to the Shah or what was your relationship to the royal family?
2: Very true. My father was the economic advisor to the crown prince then, who is today the president of the United Arab Emirates. And he was part of the team that worked on creating the United Arab Emirates and working with the government in order to create the federation that took place in the 1971. And this year we are celebrating the 50th anniversary, the golden jubilee of the formation of the United Arab Emirates. So this year is a very special year for everyone. I think a key aspect of what helped for me or pre embed all this in me was my mother. Her name is Buthayna Al-Qadi, and she installed in me a keen eye for constantly searching, identifying, and valuing traditional objects and the appreciation not just of the item itself, but the understanding of the need to document and preserve the pieces that are in my possession. Continuing this notion of preservation of tradition and the protection of heritage is a major component of what the ZEI initiative stands for and where the majority of my focus lies at the present. Growing up in the United Arab Emirates, as I said earlier, it is a young and growing area of the world now. As we are uh, hosting Expo Dubai, this is the first Arab Expo fair to take place historically. And it happens to take place in Dubai on the 50th year of the anniversary of this uh, young nation. It's quite an achievement and it's quite an endeavor. And... For us as Zay, you've known me since I started this project, and for us to be part of Expo and to be featured within Expo is an accomplishment in itself, especially when we are at such a young age ourselves as Zay. Being able to be part of a historic movement, a historic event, it's really a milestone that we are very pleased about.
0: As you mentioned, your book focuses on the years 1966 to 2004, and is this a period that you describe as the post-oil period when an oil boom in the region really brought globalization and thus vast social and economic transformation to the region But before we focus on the changes that came post-OIL, I would love if you could help us to understand what the region was like before. What was it like socially, culturally, politically, and what might we have expected to see specifically in the ways of women's dress and sartorial practices? Because as you mentioned, the UAE is very young and therefore these dress practices are going to extend back thousands and thousands of years.
2: So you know that, uh, as we said, that UAE today, especially with the Expo of 2020 Dubai happening, is a completely different geopolitical, socio-economical example of what it used to be pre the oil period. Looking at it, it's a completely different picture. It was a very small, a much smaller community, a more nomadic lifestyle, a simpler and modest living conditions. And in a way, I was lucky to experience that because even though I was young, but I arrived at a period where this transformation is taking place. We arrived to the UAE in 1968 and the Federation took place in 1971. And with it, as the country grew, I happened to grow and experience on a daily basis, the changes that were taking place, and that is a unique experience. I don't think many people can go through it. And it, I was lucky that I was there at that time in order to document it, even if it meant it was in my mind at that time and as I was growing up and personally experiencing it. The transformation took place after the discovery of the oil. You wanted to know about Pre-oil, it was basically a nomadic lifestyle. People moved. They weren't living in one particular area, mainly Bedouins. Bedouins tend to travel according to the seasons. Cities were very small. People knew each other. Most of them were related one way or the other. And it was a very closed society. Times were very hard at the time. So people were very frugal. They were very careful with what they have. They made use of it. And I think they understood the meaning of recycling much better and before our age and time, because they used it and they interpreted it into their style of clothing. We have one of the main style of dresses, UAE gowns called miyazza, meaning jazza in Arabic, which means paneling. And it is a style that is very well known and celebrated in the area in the UAE. And it has its sister styles among the region in whether it is Bahrain, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and so on and so forth. And usually that article of clothing is composed of panels of fabric. Because fabric was dear, because fabric was rare, women tended to save pieces of the fabrics that they received, the small pieces that they could afford at the time, put them together and introduce a style of its own that is worn, whereby the most Expensive pieces of fabric are shown in the front part and in the most uh, centralized part of the dress. And the other, let's say, reused pieces or unimportant, not so expensive parts of fabrics were used in other areas of the dress. So women were very uh, creative and they were very, uh, how can I say, naturally understood the value of what they had and therefore they made use of it as best as they could. They also understood that Their clothing had to be compact. It needed to work with the weather and the climatic uh, situation that they lived in. It needed to be layered. Therefore, you see in the traditional style of clothing, it is a fact of layering. So when it is uh, mostly hot, because the climate in general was hot, in this area of the world, it still is. It changes a little bit during the winter times, few months of the winter. But again, when you are in the desert, climate also has extreme cold at night. So you need to layer, you need to put on many layers of clothing and they understood this and they worked with it. And also they needed to move from one area to the other. So they had to have materials or items that they could carry with them easily and take around with them uh, wherever they went. So these elements played an important factor in the style and in the type and in the design of the clothing that they wore. Definitely, they were very baggy clothing for climatic as well as socio-religious notions because when you are wearing a wide uh, overflowing garment it allows the air to circulate within the body and helps cool it and at the same time when you are wearing that sort of a garment you are abiding to social and religious norms of the time. Can you talk about
0: some of the other basic elements that were there in that pre-oil period and as you said the abaya was there but then they transform and evolve throughout the latter part of the 20th century
2: definitely Um, uh, if we go to the basic components of dress in the united arab emirates it is about five articles of clothing and let me start from the head the head is always covered with what they call a shayla which is a a veil a very thin veil it could be anything from net to a light voile or cotton. Then you have the face mask or face cover, which is called a burgo. And generally, it is of calico cotton that is imbued with indigo dye and treated in a certain way so that it is stiffened and cut out and shaped according to the face of each woman. It is a tool to protect the face from the elements to condition it because indigo dye has special medicinal advantages that help moisturize the face and help with any ailments that might be there due to dryness of weather and so on and so forth. At the same time, this burgo or face mask is shaped to accentuate certain parts of the face. So if you have beautiful eyes, the woman would learn how to show her beautiful eyes. And if she has, let's say, something that she wants to cover and not show because it's not so good looking as she wants, then she would use the way she cuts her burga to conceal that part. Then you have the body cover, which is basically a dress called kandora. And on top of that, you would wear something, this overgarment, which we call, which is a wide, shapeless dress that is more formal. It is worn on top of your candora on formal occasions or if you want to go out. It is so wide that it allows to cover the body and to help you conceal yourself when needed underneath all of this, there is the pants, underpants, which are the sirwal. It's called the sirwal. And generally, the sirwal would have beautiful ankle cuffs. They could be anything from embroidery to silver adornment. And it can be used as a sign of beauty, as well as a sign of accumulating wealth and keeping it close to your body. And then generally, women would be in the old days, would walk barefoot and they use hinna, the dye, to help, again, with moisturizing and protecting their feet, as well as creating individual designs for beautification and for individuality. Uh, the same hinna dye is also used on the hands, on the palms of the hands, and also it can be used on the hair to condition the hair. And you're going to say, what about the abaya? I didn't mention it. Most women in the UAE, as I said, we did not wear the abaya. The shayla, the head veil, and the thobe were more than enough to cover their body and to help them cover most of their bodies. The abaya was an expensive piece of clothing that was available for everyone. It was the dress of those of the higher echelons of society. And as I said, it was loaned out to those who could not afford it on their special days and special occasions. Uh, the same thing happened with men, by the way, and I have a wonderful story to share. Um, one of the very, very famous ministers in the United Arab Emirates, who was one of my father's best friends, and uh, he had the highest position in the land after the president himself. It always tells the story that he and one of the other ministers in the early days, could not afford to have an abaya. One minister was wealthy and he could have an abaya, and the other one didn't. And one of them was short, and the other one was very tall. And every time they wanted to go to be granted audience with the Sheikh Zayed, the one who could not afford it, who was the tall man, would be very ashamed to go in informally without an abaya. And what he used to do, he used to borrow his friend and colleagues' abaya so that he would greet the Sheikh Zayed with it. And when he came out, he would give him the abaya to wear it and then go in again when the other person's turn would come and go in to greet the president Sheikh Zayed at the time. But I asked, I said, but how could that be? You are so tall, and he is so short. How would you fit in one same garment? And he said, when my colleague went in, he would put it on his shoulder and he would walk in because it is his size and it is his abayat. When it was time for me to go in, I would fold it into my hand and drink it on my arm and walk in, in order to see the president and come out. So this is how humble and how simple they were. And this is how they were at one together. And I think it's a wonderful story to share.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful story. And it really speaks to the significance of dress and textiles, right? The symbolism that they possess in so many different ways and the the different roles that they play in different facets of people's lives and society and in exchanges. I actually would love if you could talk a little bit more about the historical significance of textiles to the region. I think textiles
2: as a region, as an Arab region, as a whole, I think textiles are part and parcel of our daily life. If you remember, or if your listeners listeners might know, that the Arab world sits on the Silk Route, and it's the old Silk Route, and it is the exchange between East and West. It has been so for many decades, and it is embedded in the culture, Arab culture, because Many of the Arab regions have nomadic living people, therefore they are not sedentary. They move from one place to the other. And textiles is always part and parcel of what they can carry with them. It signifies so much to them. It is what their tent is made of after all. That is how they live on their daily basis. And actually we have a webinar coming up that is going to be discussing architecture and textiles and fashion and how they relate to each other in the Arab world. So as far as the non-sedentary people and the nomads that that are in, in the Arab world, but those who have lived in cities, old cities like Damascus, Baghdad, Cairo, and so on and so forth, Morocco and other North African Arab countries, they are accustomed to the tradition of textiles as well. And they were centers of textile production. Let me just give an example. When we speak about cotton, that's an Arab world, cotton. It comes from the word cotton. So many of the Western dialects and language is based on what the medieval time textile uh, traditions of the area. Damascene or Damas, it comes from Damascus, or it is named after the city of Damascus where it used to be made. Uh, Muslim comes from Mosul, which is a city in northern Iraq. So many other terms and terminologies relate to the area and testify to the old tradition and the important role that textiles have played in the region as a whole, let alone the United Arab Emirates. Again, when we look into these things, we always have to compare or keep in mind in perspective that when we are talking about the Arab world, we are talking about different periods of time and different locales, different societies, and similar but varied types of cultures. And they were all affected by that. Textile road.
0: Yeah, such an incredibly rich trade and textile history in the region. And as you just said, like the impact, the seismic impact of that textile trade for the world, essentially, is really incredible to learn. We could do an entire podcast
2: episode about that. Actually, uh, a, a nice note that your listeners might enjoy. Um, and I go back again to Expo because it's such a huge event that's taking place here. The major dome that connects all of Expo together is named al Wasl Dome. The term Wasl in Arabic means to connect, okay? And it is the old name of Dubai. And we are now, I'm bringing you back to the UAE after I took you to the rest of the Arab world. So when we look at this dome today, which is the first human-made dome that is photosensitive and it is the largest ever dome that is created as a screen and Whatever is projected on this dome is projected internally and externally. And it is said that you could view the projection from outer space, So we are connecting to the rest of the universe through this, whatever we are projecting on this dome. It's a great human endeavor. And still, it is carrying this trade or this thread of connectivity and interchange of cultures and interchange of human accomplishments still today. And we are using the term that was used for the city of Dubai many, many, many years in the past.
0: I love that. And I love because you talk about too about how the book traditions renewed is because these traditions continued. So there's so many connections, right? As you said, a thread between the past and the present. And that's why this book is so incredible in so many ways you write so eloquently and so beautifully about the incredible importance of textiles to the region's cultural heritage. This is something you repeatedly underscore throughout the book. And those are some of my favorite stories as you give us glimpse into these different facets of the importance of textiles, not just as a trade item, for instance, but as a currency and as
2: gifts. I think the best way to illustrate the point is if I talk about textiles as part of the dowry. Dowry marks a turning point in every female's life. It is the mark from girlhood to womanhood. Usually when a female is of age, and that is when she has her period, it is the time for her to be ready for marriage. That was in the olden days. And usually that is the age of between 12 to 14 in general at that time. And the dowry was an important Part of her life, she would prepare for it or her family and her, her mother would prepare and aunts and cousins and so on would prepare for it and collected And for that day, specifically for that day, as well as her husband's family or husband to be would prepare and collect and bring it together and in order to present it. To her on her marriage, usually in our in our society, it's in the Arab world, not like in the Indian society. In the Indian society, it is the female that brings in the dowry. In the Arab world, it's mainly the groom that brings in the dowry. And the dowry is usually composed of the textiles that you mentioned, clothing, definitely, perfumery, jewellery, even food like raw materials like rice and and corn and so on and so forth would compose the, the overall dowry. Depending on the wealth of the family and the bride, of course, the size of the dowry is going to be larger and more increased. But what is important as an aspect The dowry used to serve a purpose. It provided the bride with her basic requirements for her new life. That was one thing. But moreover, the bountiful dowry allowed for a form of social cohesion, again, because any access was shared with the tribe as gifts to everyone that comes to help during the communal feast. So what used to happen was these... Fabrics and these numbers of fabrics that they used to collect and and, and put together in trunks, and they would carry them into the bride's home. They would get distributed evenly among the tribe and among the family uh, around her in order uh, to thank them for their contribution. Because during a wedding, they all come together and one would cook, the other one would bring rice, the other one will bring bread, and so on and so forth. So it's a communal festivity uh, that they all share and they share the bounty of it and it allows for this cohesion that takes place. Today, the abundance of wealth has created expressions of extreme pageantry that somehow over exceeds the basic objectives of what the tradition denotes. Before, uh, to give you an example, they they would carry this, let's say about 10, 15 ladies and men would carry it on trunks Small trunks above their head, they will lift it up and they would carry it, or baskets and they would bring in the materials that they are bringing for the dowry and maybe a couple of pieces of gold and jewelry. Today, we have extravagant ways of presenting dowries, whereby if you follow our Instagram account, Sultani, which is related to the UAE in particular, or you follow the Zay Initiative Instagram account, we always receive from followers video clips of dowries that are taking place. And now the big trucks that have advertisements in the Western world, the glass trucks, (laughs) now they use those in order to put the dowry in it. They have trunks that are designed in all sorts of shapes and designs and flowers. And the amount of jewelry that is presented is unbelievable. You have sort of colors of jewelry. You would have (laughs) the diamond set, the ruby set, the emerald set, the lapis lazuli set, the gold set, the traditional set, the European set, the Japanese style, the so-and-so style. So you have this wealth of influences that are coming from abroad and incorporated into it. And it has become and evolved into something that is really, really spectacular to watch and see.
0: Yeah, it sounds absolutely beautiful.
2: (laughs) And these gifts remain with the bride's family. They are not given away (laughs) to the community any longer.
0: It's such an incredible book and I highly encourage, we'll encourage our listeners to check out any and all online resources that'll give us um, more insights into this as well. Because like you said, we've just skimmed the surface, but I would like to give listeners a before and after picture just based on early economy, because in the pre-oil period, you write about how it was a pearl export economy and dates, for instance, boats, fishing, agriculture. That was what the economy was built around in the pre-oil period. And then after the oil period, you're having pearl profound social, cultural, and economic transformations because of the sheer amount of money that's coming into the region. And this, of course, had implications for both women's lives and their dress practices and styles. I would love if you could talk a little bit more about the transformations that came with women's dress in the post-oil
2: period. I think not only that, as you mentioned, that we had this Profound change in status and wealth that took place in this country. But it was coupled with something that was very unique, that was observed throughout the whole world, and that is this technological burst, internet, this. Ability to be exposed to the rest of the world and to bring in the world, this is unique to all humankind, but it was very advantageous for people from this area, because when you have that together with the wealth or exposable income that you can have in this area of the world at this present time, it is a fruitful grounds for amazing textile tailoring and creative production and that is what's happening today now so if i was to compare tailoring for example before the oil period and the tailoring culture after the oil period let's say before the oil period most of the tailoring took place by women who catered for their families and if it happens to be that this woman was talented and the rest of the village and the tribe around her found out that she has the talent for tailoring, then they would send her pieces to help them. And if a certain woman was incapable or didn't have the knack for tailoring, her friend, her neighbor, her relative, and remember, these are women that are all interrelated one way or the other. So they would help each other and they would create the clothing that is required for their family and for their surrounding tribe. Remember again that the lifestyle was harsh and therefore there was not much wealth and not many articles of clothing were created at that period of time. We come to post oil period and the country is opening up. There is an immense amount of wealth. We have people coming in to the area, mainly from the Indian subcontinent because they have a tradition, a long history and tradition of textiles, embroidery, tailoring, and so on and so forth. All the supporting mechanism for such a trade And they start setting root and mushrooming around with small tailoring shops that could create and supply what is needed for consumers in the area. Now, these people or this period of time saw... what we call the same, which means these men did not understand the culture of this area. So they came in from a culture that is alien to this area. So they didn't understand it. So what they did was, and for the women to make them understand what they want, they would give them a piece of clothing and ask them to make something similar to it. And hence the term same, same. So they copied. It was a continuous copying and recycling of one specific design or aspect that that was cre- created again and again and if you go back to the old images from that period you will notice that most of the women and men of course men continue until today because it's basically the dress format of men is basically the same hasn't changed but with women we have so many so much has evolved at the time you would see most women wearing a similar fabric almost the identical fabric b identical style and design in almost the same embroidery. Why? Because the merchant who brought the fabrics, he brought certain number of bolts of fabric, so it had to be divided among the people <laughs> that were there. So we end, everyone ended up wearing almost the same piece of fabric. Secondly, those who worked on them and tailored them and embroidered them were the same man or the same group of people, and therefore they just regagitated the same style and the same design and the same same embroidery work. And then we jumped from there to later on in the 80s and 90s, where I would say the beginning of the golden age, when we started having designers and dressmakers from the rest of the Arab region, the Arab world, they began to see that there is a need for this in this area, the Gulf area, the more rich area. So you have people from old cities like Iraq, Damascus, Egypt, uh, Lebanon, North Africa coming in order to work and to produce dress formats that are catering for the region and for the specific area. So they began to introduce their culture, their Arab culture, rather than a non-Arab culture into the dress format. The fabrics were still mainly from the East, uh, because these were the fabrics that women and men were very much accustomed to in the area. But eventually, we have another stage where it opened to Europe to the rest of the world, to Japan, to United States, and so on and so forth, whereby technology started to be imported, materials began to be imported. For example, in the 80s, there were certain metallic ribbons, metallic thread, embroidery materials, sequence, even iron-ons, like crystal iron-ons coming in from uh, Europe, Swarovski, and others that were becoming now established in the area. And being introduced into the dress format catering for the locale today what we have is a completely different image whereby you have youngsters from the area here young Emiratis and young non emiratis who have grown up in this area who have lived their life here the way i did becoming involved in design and creativity because they started going to schools and they went to universities and they started majoring in these fields and studying them and introducing their own brand, their own identity, their own styles into the field. And what helped them, again, technology and the Instagram and so on and so forth, because they managed to grow their, let's say, cottage industries into brands because they use the tool the instagram tool in order to spread what they were working on and for them to be introduced to the world so it's always not one factor but a number of other factors that can help propel the industry one way or the other i hope i gave you the good picture yeah
0: you did And <laughs> we're going to talk more about that a little bit later on too I also want to talk to you about that period just following in the early, maybe late 60s, early 70s, and how the maintenance of a distinctive identity through dress in the face of globalization became an important part of the UAE. For instance, there was you write about how there was no direct political pressure on dress codes. That was never applied, but adherence to national dress and Islamic dress styles were encouraged socially as an expression of local identity. And that is something that is really on view throughout your book and how these traditions could continue to remain important despite all of these global influences.
2: Yes, and, and I think, again, it takes me back, and I really mean it sincerely, to Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al Nahyan. He was the driving force behind that, and it was his vision. And as a child, and as I grew up, I remember the way he insisted that his people continue to wear their national dress as much as possible, be it at home, at festivities. He would not receive anyone in his audience if they were not dressed in national dress. So the women competed to dress up in the most beautiful national costume in order to impress him. Remember, again, it was a small society. People knew each other. Everybody knew everyone. It was like a large family. And therefore, contact with each other was very easy and Continuous. The situation was not the the cityscape and the governmental institution that you see today, whereby you have millions of people coming in and out, be it through Dubai or Abiy or the other states and the structure was much simpler. It was just being formed. So he was very instrumental in this thing. The other thing that he was worried about at the time was the fact that the UAE nationals as a community, they were a small community compared to the expatriates that were coming not only from the Arab world or the Muslim world, but from the whole globe everywhere. They were coming in flux, looking for their uh, chance to make it in their world, working in different fields. And it was very important that the national identity is not dissolved indirectly through the exposure to the rest of the world. So it was very important to encourage. It was never enforced, but it's always encouraged. And that's the difference between the area here and maybe some of the surrounding areas. And this helped the continuation. And again, I believe if we look at things pragmatically, it is this present situation of globalization that's taking place. You tend to borrow articles or design influences from areas beyond where you are, and it filtrates into your area of the world on a very slow, almost generational stage. But what was happening here is that there was wealth, there was ability. There was this huge openness to the rest of the world, so it allowed for specific circumstances where design and innovation and evolution of this dress took place, rather than it being left alone or discarded for the use of a different format, uh, Western style of clothing or non-national style of clothing. So th- this helped it, I think, because of the uh, current global circumstances they helped in enforcing and allowing traditional format of clothing to continue to exist now I must clarify, that doesn't mean that everybody that walks around here is dressed in their national clothing. (laughs) You see us all dressing up in very international format of dress. Uh, I'm wearing just a normal tunic uh, as I speak to you. These circumstances allowed for a continuation of traditional dress, evolution of the traditional red dress, rather than putting it into a museum realm and making it something of the past for it to continue into the future. And if if I may use an example, we have a cloak that is worn in public by women. It is called the abaya and it's generally black. I believe it is black because it used to be made out of indigo dye and therefore it was dark and in color. And indigo being such a precious dye, people wanted to wear it to show status, to show their position in life. And these outer garments became created in this kind of dye. And eventually with industrialization and mechanization, fabrics were made in black to imitate the indigo. And therefore you see a lot of these outer garments now in black. Now, this is just a theory I have. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but this is what I've been able to surmise through my studies. looking at the culture here. And uh, this black cloak used to be a square-shaped overgarment that is worn by men and women. If it is by men, generally it would be of the very fine, very thin wool, be it camel or be it goat. And it will always have this gold embellishment on the neckline and in the middle of the garment. And uh, this would be a status symbol and people would own it to show where they are in society. And if you are not capable, and if you did not have the privilege of owning enough money to own one of those, then you would borrow it, and it from somebody who, who owns one. And that created for a social uh, cohesion among these tribes and families and by borrowing from each other and using it on their special days and occasions. With the influx of oil, these kinds of uh, garments, the silk one, what usually was worn, is worn by women. And the, as I said, the woolen one is mainly worn by men uh, nowadays. With the evolution of this type of dress or style of dress, It changed from this overgarment, which is square and it had, it was shapeless almost and it engulfed the whole body and it became a cloak that can be uh, worn with sleeves and it is worn almost like a jacket, a long jacket. So it evolved in shape, why? Because women began to drive cars, they began to go to universities, they started using computers, they are part and parcel of the working class now. So they require a garment that gives them this coverage that they need, and at the same time allows them to function within the new circumstances. That are required. Before this abaya was worn, when a woman left her home, and usually most women would not leave their home unless they are getting married or traveling from one area to the other for the season, or there was a special occasion. So it didn't need to be more fitted and more stylized. Today, it is more stylized even further to the extent that now there is a abaya that you wear for office. There is another style that you wear for the house or for going out to the market. And yes, there is there are these elaborate, highly uh, decorated and embellished uh, abayas that are worn at weddings and special events. So they started having different styles and formats. And today, with the after the millennium, They have reintroduced color. Young ladies have reintroduced color to it because with the present world circumstances, they want to change perceptions and they introduced color so that they can blend easier when they are traveling abroad, when they are not in their country. And it, it allows them to keep their sense of individuality to continue their social and religious beliefs and yet at the same time allows them to be fashionable, to be on par with any international well-dressed woman.
1: And it is here that we will end part one of our two-part conversation with Dr. Reem. Kaz, you know, with all this talk about the colorful range of fashions worn by UAE women today, I could not help but be reminded of our fairly recent trip together to the Contemporary Muslim Fashions Exhibition at the Cooper Hewitt, which was a Months ago now, but that exhibition also reveals a myriad of ways that Muslim women and the Arab world and around the globe are really style arbiters within and beyond their own communities. And as consumers, designers, entrepreneurs, photographers, journalists, and influencers, there is so much incredible Arab fashion out there to see.
0: Oh yeah, that was such an incredible exhibition. I think you and I, our minds were blown walking in there and seeing so much range and wonderful, wonderful dress. Um, And actually, this is a conversation that the Zay is very much a part of, as we've discussed. The Zay, you know, exhibits, collects, and preserves the cultural heritage of women across the Arab world. And these threads between the past and present are really central to their mission and something you can explore further, dress listeners, by checking out their website, thezay.org, where you will learn and read about the countless artifacts in the Zay collection. This is an incredibly unique and special digital archive. I highly recommend you check it out. It's free of charge. It's super easy to navigate. And you can search the archive, which I love, April. I think we know when you come across different dress collections online with different organizations, it's not always easy to search. Um, But this archive, you can search by decade, you can search by country, by garment, by textile motif techniques. The list is really endless. So enjoy.
1: I think the first time I kind of like wandered in there, I realized that it was like an hour and a half later and I was just still like looking at
0: things. Yeah, and it's so great too because you can click on a lot of the words that they have that you don't, and the definition will just pop up immediately, which again, it's just a really, really great archive.
1: Yeah, it's really, really well done too. Really well executed, I would say. So by subscribing to the Zay Initiative's platforms, you will also be kept up to date on the many incredible events they produce, including their webinar series, as well as their upcoming November 14th, Arab Costume Collections Sustaining Legacy Symposium Past. Present and future. And this is going to be a two hour online discussion with two panel sessions. The first panel is going to focus on the importance of Arab dress and culture with key collectors and speakers from around the globe. And the second panel is going to focus on the role and relevance of heritage contemporary brands. So you can find out lots more about the symposium and the speakers and the event on thezay.org. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the traditions renewed in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember,
0: we love hearing from you. So please email us at dress@iheartmedia.com. to iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will always find images accompanying each week's episode. You can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we
1: appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way soon. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.